All right, so uh, joining me for the wee chat this week is none other than the legend himself, Mr. Mark Christie, uh, someone who I met out in California, um, who through coaching also went to uh, ended up going to the same uni as my cousin Chris, Big Pixie. So uh, we had a bit of a immediate connection there. Um, Christie, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It's been a while, right? I haven't seen you for a while, mate. It's been a long time, and we're just saying that. We were speaking before I hit record. It's, uh, it's definitely been too long, man. It's been too long for sure, so it was good to get catch-up. I thought of you when I started thinking about speaking to coaches. I was like, I've got to get the Christie on. It'll be a good conversation. Okay. Mate, I told, I've told okay. a, couple, a couple of the boys in Cali said they're, they're looking forward to this one, so you've got some expectations to live up to. Okay. No, yeah, they're looking forward to it. Um, they're, they're we're they're Denny's to... afterwards. We're getting a oh, little Denny's. Oh, we Denny's. What was the thing we used to get? The wee Hobbit, Hobbit hole. Hobbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> God, I have to... Oh, man, after, being, after going to the gym, doing nothing for 10 minutes, eating smoothies in a Denny's, man. No, that was yeah. class. That's team, right? That was class, man. So, Christy, just so anyone that listens know, like, you've, you've, you've coached out in Calais. You did a bit um, in Scotland, obviously, with Aberdeen, like the women's and stuff, right? When you were starting out, yeah, and then yeah, um, Aberdeen yeah. Football Club, but mostly community stuff. Um, used to go and watch the academy sessions, right? Then tried to reinvent the the women's game in, at Aberdeen University, and then got into the Aberdeen women's game, junior football, you know, you name it, and then over with MLS camps, and then the rest is the rest is history. Ah, you know? <laughs> and that's brilliant. So, um. I wanted to start with asking you, my first question to, to kind of get the ball rolling on when this is going to go is, how did you fall in love with football growing up? What was it that drew you to it? Um, yeah, really interesting one. So, my mum my doesn't really into football at all. Okay. And my dad is, he obviously, my dad's Scottish, so football's been a part of his life, even mm. though he probably didn't play that much. But um, more, he was more into music, you know? So for me, where is it? I don't know where it came from. You know, it came from um, basically living in a kind of council estate about a mile from Potaudry. Right. And I, I remember clearly um, getting the knock on, I got a knock on the door from one of the local kids. He's like, you want to come up and play football? That's what we called it. <laughs> you know? so, mm-hmm. so you want to play? So like after that, playing on the streets, it was basically became just like a social thing. So it was like I would get the knockout. So for imagine me, we Christy at like six year old, seven year old, never really kicked a ball. It wasn't like my dad was really into football too much, you know. And mm. then suddenly, knocking the door at seven o'clock, you're coming down to play World Cup. So you'd, you'd go to school at seven in the morning, play World Cup before school, mm-hmm. and then at lunchtime and then after school, and it just became became your life, you know. And then what really changed things for me is when the first time I went to. Uh, Potaudry, my dad took me in, and you're you're bouncing with the fans, you know. Uh, and then like the game changer, another one was uh, literally what would have been eight year old, so 1989 Skull Cup final. Right. Okay. There at Hamden, like there must have been eighty thousand people there. Um. So me and my dad get up at like six in the morning. We go on the train. So we're on, we're on this train. We're like thousands of Aberdeen casuals, and imagine I'm I'm eight year old, you know. Do you imagine how exciting that was? Eight that would be amazing, man. Thousands amazing. The thousands of casuals, like every time we stopped in our blows, they're banging at the windows. Yeah. We stopped in Dundee, they're, they're singing songs, you know. Willie Miller's Barmy Army for like two hours. <laughs> you get to Glasgow and there's big Clydesdale horses, there's Rangers fans shouting at you. We get to the stadium, 
you know, we're in the, we're very next to like um, the Aberdeen fans. There's like a family section, but there's like thousands of Aberdeen fans. Mm. You know, you win the Skull Cup. We win 2-1 against Rangers in front of 80,000 people. You're hooked, you know? Yeah. You're hooked on that buzz of like seeing your team score a goal. I think it was like your, your home city of Aberdeen, my home city. It was the social aspect of that was the only sport that people played. And so for me, it quickly became, I don't think I was maybe like a natural player, but I okay. just worked. I got so involved in it that it kind of just became part of who I, who I am. You know? That's class, man. That's, that's the best story I've heard on here. Yeah, that's brilliant. I remember you telling me about the, the casual stuff. That's, uh, that's class. Do you, think, like, do you think that stuff still goes on now? Do you think? Um, <laughs> oh, obviously, <laughs> before the pandemic, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. What happened was, well, I think that's a very interesting question because it's, it's a little, you have to go back in history if you want mm. the chance that mm. when you, you basically had like a huge hooligan movement starting in the 60s, 70s. Aye. Obviously, Liver, Liverpool went to, were the first club to go to like play in Europe and bring mm-hmm. back all the gear. Mm-hmm. Liverpool started the casual movement. You know, they, they're, they're hooligans basically going to play AC Milan in a Champions League match, European League match, and just stealing all the Lacoste gear. <laughs> and coming back, to, coming back to UK, you know. So Aberdeen have got like pretty good fan base. So they're playing Liverpool in like 1983. Josh, mm-hmm. Aberdeen are playing Liverpool. So Ferguson against Liverpool, 1983. And Aberdeen's wow. toughest fans are like, who are all these soft lads with the wedge cuts wearing Lacoste jerseys and yeah. bikini? And then they came at them after the game. So all these soft lads came charging at them, and Aberdeen are like, shit, these guys are pretty cool. Who are they? So that's how the, the casual movement basically started in Scotland. Mm. Aberdeen were the first to start wearing all the LS, the keeping up. So it was part of the culture, right? And then in, yeah. to fast forward in simple terms, Margaret Thatcher and the Tory government like shut it all down. They made, mm. they, you're going to jail if you're involved in that. Like, so I think what happened, it disappeared and became almost like minute. Mm. And then I think what well, I'm speaking to some boys back home, you had these guys in their like 30s, is bored now and wanted to get back into it yeah so there was a little a little resurgence i think just before you see like chelsea everton and that but i think it's it's never going to be like it was unless you no. get extreme poverty yeah you know unless yeah you yeah yeah, yeah. Like a huge like unless people are really kind of desperate you know what I mean? You've got people have got too much to lose now, you know, mm, mm. to get arrested for having a fight, you know. But back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the police weren't on top of it. People didn't really have much to lose. Um, and that's why it still goes on in like some of these countries in like Poland. And, you know, you still, you still hear about it in like other countries. So I don't think it'll come back in a big way. Maybe, nah. maybe just me and you fighting at the, the Hearts game. Hearts <laughs> <laughs> oh, have redeemed me 2023 or something, man. No, I definitely. <laughs> I'm into history, you know. I thought it was like incredible that the stuff cool. that used to go on in, in Aberdeen. Like my mum and dad would say, they would shut down most of Aberdeen. Mm. This city centre, when Rangers and Hibs and um, Celtic came to town, like people shutting their their shops on Saturday afternoon. Wow! Imagine that in Princess Street or wherever. Shops nah, you can't imagine that now. Actually, it's a great point. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the world's different. Eh? It's a different, it's a different yeah, it's, place. The culture. Like, even like people have got more money. People have got more things. You know, mm. people are generally better off. I mean, the pandemic's an interesting one because o- over here, Josh, I don't know if you know, but a lot of riots went down. Obviously, right? Yeah, just before mm-hmm. I left, that all started. Yeah. 
Yeah, you think in in the the Great Mall in Milpitas? Right. Okay. Yeah, it was like a, I think it was eighty people ran in and started like stealing stuff from Best Buy. And so people yeah. are more people are more more brave when there's like you know turmoil. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Most people, yeah. people in Scotland now. I mean, people don't even go to the games. Like, it's incredible when you watch some of the footage from like days gone past in Scotland, sixty, seventy, seen hundred thousand people at mm-hmm. games. You know, it's people packed. It. The games now, you know, let alone fighting it. You know? No, it's you're right. That that's one thing I've noticed a little bit here is like it's turning into like a wee. I don't even know how to explain it, but you're right. People don't go to the games. Like, there's certain certain fans, not that they're don't support their team as much as the others, but the the the, the fans have changed, right? The people that are supporting the teams have definitely changed. So you don't get the same. I agree. You don't get the sellouts. You don't get the casual stuff. It, it's it's different for whatever reason. It's different, like you say, probably because there's more money now. Cultures has changed. The world's changed. But it's interesting, like, but that's that's cool. I didn't. I kind of knew that casual stuff about like Liverpool and Aberdeen and all that and the gear. I've watched a couple of documentaries and that on it. Um, but that's cool. I didn't know it to that kind of full extent that, that that's kind of how things went. That that's really cool. Yeah. Just ask Pixie. I probably bored him at uni with all this. <laughs> I'll get. He's getting tagged and sat on here, and he'll be getting. Uh, he'll be getting a message to get asked about that. But um, there was a there was a book it we were fascinated about is at high school, Josh. It was called uh-huh. uh, Bloody, Bloody Casuals. Okay. It was about an Aberdeen guy. I think I'm pretty sure he was the first to, to get sent to jail in Scotland for right. football hooligans. Right. Uh, they ambushed Motherwell uh, mm. in Aberdeen. They ambushed the Motherwell uh, group and he got sent to jail. And that was like, it was exciting as a kid. You know, you don't know any better. Of course. You just, you know the football and then you hear, you read this book and it's more about the school and it's exciting, you know, when you're a kid. It's like your city against their city. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting movement. Absolutely, you get lured into. It. I can see it. Obviously, I'm not, not going in that. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So how did so then? So how did you then? Like, where did the coaching start for you then? Obviously, doing it as a fan. Like, where did the coaching start? The coaching. Yeah, I, I, I basically ended up in Vegas in 2003. Right, on okay. this vacation. Like we'll go to, we get into Vegas, we spend a couple of nights there. Now imagine a young guy from Aberdeen, right? I've, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been to Holland and Germany as a kid, but Vegas blew my mind. <laughs> kind of, you know? Of course Absolutely. it does. You get it. First time I've been on, I've, I've never been on a plane, really. I think I went to a couple of, went to London maybe, and you're on a small plane, but uh. on the plane to Vegas, touchdown in Vegas, like you're seeing, you know, you see Caesar's Palace and, Look, sure, it's like this is amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely taken away with it. You know? Go back to go back to Scotland and start university, University of Aberdeen. And I see this poster up, um, coach in America in the summer, MLS camps, you know. And mm-hmm. I th- I think if I hadn't had that trip to America, I wouldn't yeah. even have thought twice about it. Yeah. But the fact yeah. that I saw this coaching, and then I was like, oh wait a minute, I think I could do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, so I never coached. I'm like it's 2004, first year at uni. I've never coached. Obviously, football's been in my life, but the, the two things came together: coaching in America. And I thought, well, I really don't want to go to America. I love that. I love the the atmosphere over there. I love how friendly people are. Yeah. So how do I go about coaching? And that's where it started. I basically applied to MLS camps, and they said you need to get a qualification. You need to get at least one. 
qualification. Okay. And I think that's where I, uh, I basically emailed Aberdeen Football Club and signed up for, what was it called back in the day, early touches or level okay. one. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, how, and that's how it starts. So I'm literally like at uni with Pixie and um, studying sports science, sports, you know, sports um, exercise science, um, you know, working on all that stuff with Pixie and then working at Aberdeen on the side doing like, I don't know, a couple hours in the community. Right. Teaching kids step overs and scissors or curver stuff. You know? All that, that stuff. That's yeah. how it started. But it all, all started from that dream to to get over to America, I think. Something something excited me about America, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It, it, obviously, I've moved back, so I still get, I get people like, why why, why did you move back from America? Like, it has that, it has that pool, doesn't it? Like, everyone wants to go there, which is interesting. You know what I mean? Do you, do you think that, like, so, when, what, after you did all, like, the early touches and that, where did it go after that, Christy? First, um, first time I, I ever coached, I think, was, uh, would have been Boston. Right? I would have, no, I would have done, th- like, so I probably would have done a few hours in the community with Aberdeen, and then I remember meeting Ben Maxwell in yeah. Sterling University. Okay, all right, all right. I, like, it's funny, because the kids, the kids would probably describe me in a different way now. Yeah, so I yeah. reckon I would have been, uh, as a coach, hmm. shy, nervous, not confident at all, you know? Yeah. As a player, like competitive, aggressive, you know, confident. But as a coach, like very shy, nervous, like shitting myself. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. absolutely terrified because there's all these like, and there's like a, there's definitely a thing about Scottish culture. We're a little bit more reserved. We're a little mm. bit, we're not as confident maybe in, in speaking. 100%. All these guys from like um, Glasgow and stuff are a little bit more confident, you know, than maybe the Northeast people. So I was looking at me and then I remember doing a session and I thought that was pretty bad and 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 then on top of that it's not like football language you're talking this was no. this was to teach like I don't know like that kids this was to teach like five six seven year olds to love the sports so it was more to do with like remember like foxes and farmers ah, and all that stuff yeah minnows, it was it was like a well out of my comfort zone from like yeah. the language imagine the language in the changing rooms of a junior game and now that now I'm in Sterling Uni, yeah, <laughs> like I've got a penny in my my, <laughs> my side, you know. We're ah, yeah, changing yeah. after playing, taking tag and that. Mm. But I just embraced it, and I, I knew something would good would come out of it. I knew mm. like this is a sacrifice here, and a lot of coaches don't go through that yeah. nowadays, which is really same. I had to go through that struggle of being nervous, going down to uh, Sterling, going down to Manchester on my own at a young age to to learn how to coach, and and then from there. Yeah, I'm literally in Boston with like 20 cones, 10 balls, 20 kids. Good luck, like. Right, like okay. We've, we've crazy, but nobody to, nobody to mentor me. And I was just like, but what, what, I basically, had, I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with having a good product. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's what maybe made me different. Even from the start, I was like, I want those kids to have the best week ever. Yeah. I don't want them to go home for the week and say that was average. I was like... I really want those kids to be the to have so much fun yeah. and learn something, you know. And I think even after that first week, like two or three parents were like, "I've never seen a coach with so much passion and energy in it." Yeah, and it kind of became became the kind of formula, you know. Do you not think that what you just said there? Do you not think that stands out right away when you look at someone coach? You could watch someone coach for a minute and you could see that or don't see that. Hey, eh? like some coaches, 
some coaches are, are really good in terms of the tactical piece and other things, but they, they lack sometimes in that, and that sometimes is a bit of the difference, isn't it? And that's a tough one. I, I think like, that's what MLS camps were, were really good at bringing out, mm. personality mm. and energy, and, and it's whether they – I mean, obviously, they're, they're recruiting young guys from, from university or, you know, energetic ah. public playing football. But, I mean, there's a guy, do you know Liam Guest? You know Guest? I know, I know Guest, yeah. yeah I like, know Guest. When Guest is on the field, like, he could be teaching them rugby. Aye. It's just, or, you know, like, yeah. he's, just, he's, he's energetic. That's a big fan of, big fan of that, you know, like, energetic and passionate. I think the kids love it. I think parents love it. And then, obviously, you need to add more tools to your, 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 your coaching toolbox. Like, you're not just going to get by on energy. Of course, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely powerful. Maybe, maybe more so on like clinics and camps. Mm. Maybe plan, get in maybe an MLS next game or a DA game, or sorry, an ECNL game or whatever. But yeah, I think there's definitely something in this culture. If you've got the passion and drive to, to just be engaged, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. Your, like Ben always jokes about guys standing, you know, with their arms folded or hands in their pockets. I wouldn't want to pay for that, you know. No, no, you definitely don't. Yeah, yeah. You want to, like you say, you want it. You want to see the enthusiasm, but at the same time, you need to add to that. Like when, when did you think? Like how? So you, you done the, you done the, you know that the the stuff for the kids, and you you had the energy and the passion. Like what? How did you start to add to it? What did you do? Yeah, I think so. I was very lucky that I had um, three or four amazing mentors at Aberdeen. Okay. So I had. Um, and it was, it was cool the way it worked out. So Jim Crawford was All obsessed right. with curver and skills. Mm-hmm. So he basically gave me a load of videos to watch and books on um, technical development. Okay. So that, and that's where, and then back, it's crazy. Thing, I would go to the library. You remember? <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to libraries now. Uh, I'd yeah. Go to the library and I would, I would get any technical book. So I remember this one, it was a big binder. With okay. um, Bobby Bobby Charlton's technical technical skills book or 101 techniques for soccer, so that was one one part of my my you know my toolbox was like how to teach technique. Yeah, and I remember my my younger brother was he's seven years younger than me, so I was taking him up to the park and I was teaching him how to like strike a ball and cross a ball and really obsessed with technique. Then you had Neil Simpson. Neil Simpson uh, won the Cup Winners Cup against Real Madrid under Fergie. Okay. He really helped me when in the tactical side, basically. And in simple tactics, I'm talking about individual tactical, like 2v1s, 3v2s, because that was, I think it was coaching in the game, they called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that first year in America was more about session planning. So okay. I think I became an expert in session planning and leading how kids think that first summer. So it was all about, I was leading like, and um, what's what's the timing of the next drill? Okay. When should I make the progression? And then when I came back to Scotland, that's when I realized I need to be much better at teaching techniques. I need to be able to demonstrate every technique as a player with left and right foot. Okay. I need to know all the coaching points. And then I did my coaching in the game with Simpson. And I learned, like, basically, how like you know, your three-zone game. You've maybe got a 2v1 into a 3v2. He helped me understand positioning, timing. And, and then I had um, Stuart Glennie, and um, Scott Anderson, mm-hmm. who were they were coaching a Highland League team at the time, Devonville. Okay. I don't know if you know those, those guys. 
no. they started opening my mind a little bit to like the the preparation needed. Okay. Like, because you're coaching Highland League, it's high intensity. You've got to prepare um, like a professional, you know. So I had I had those four guys as my mentors, and um, they also opened up the academy for me where I could go and watch academy sessions. Class. And then I had the academy director, um, Lenny Taylor at the time. He just thought it was interesting how passionate I was. So he opened mm-hmm. the door for me, and I was mm-hmm. able to go and watch the first team train. And so I quickly became obsessed. And, and there's something that people don't do now is watch top coaches and write down every detail. Yeah. And I think that was, my, that was basically my internship with Aberdeen was basically um, go and watch Jim Crawford. And I would write down like pages of notes, John. Mm, mm-hmm. Like my, my mom still, it's like, what do you want to do with these boxes you've got? And I just yeah. like, keep them, mom, keep them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, you know? I've got, got boxes to. and boxes of stuff. Like basically watching Neil Simpson coaching the U15s at Aberdeen, piles of notes, like where he put the cones, like what, what coaching points he made, like weaknesses in players. Um, I remember going to watch uh, when I was then progressing onto my B license. So I picked Aberdeen. I think it was U19s at the time. And I studied them for six weeks. And I, and I sent, Simi must have thought I was mad because I sent him like 80-page documents on, <laughs> on how Aberdeen, and, and it was fascinating for me. Now, now you're getting into the team tactics. Of course. And, and for me, like as a player, um, limited team tactical coaching as a player, it was basically like, Three five two against three five two, right? Four four two versus four four two. It was very man for man in junior football, and I played some Highland League games as well. We'd play Huntley and all these teams, but it was very like it was man for man. You'd play Glaswegian teams; they would have a little bit more freedom, player rotation and stuff. And you'd play Spartans, you'd play Mary Hill, but my my tactical background as a player was quite limited. So when I started coaching and seeing, I remember clearly seeing Celtic with the first team I seen play a 4-3-3 Celtic Academy. Okay, interesting. Because they'd, they'd played Barcelona in the Champions League. So they saw it. Barcelona. So that was the first time maybe going back to like 2006 that mm. I'd seen two centre-backs split. I'd yeah, never, yeah, play out. I'd never yeah. seen that. Yeah. I'd never seen two centre-backs split and the goalkeeper play wide and the full-backs mm. high and wide. Mm-hmm. And then you're six, you're the, you know, because you think about junior football that I played in, there was no holding midfield. There was no pair law. No, there was no, no uh, Busquets. It was no. not from the and you, you played direct. So then then it started getting really interesting for me, Josh, going on these 10-hour train journeys to London or eight-hour train journeys to London, now being obsessed with tactics. Like I, I see I see the young coaches now. It's almost like a drug for them, the tactical mm-hmm, part. Mm-hmm. It's their drug. You know, they love Pep. They love Klopp. I, I went through that. I was addicted to that. Yeah, yeah. I was on the train like Brendan Rodgers, obsessed with okay uh, Spain when played when Spain played that four six zero. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Different, uh, different from Craig Levine's four six zero, right? Way I was obsessed with obsessed with tracking the player movement. Like, okay, if I'm if I'm starting at the ten, but I'm getting the ball at six now. What's the timing? What's the that's kind of a little bit how it progressed. I'm just coaching pubs and farmers, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. Did you, did you know, right, when you saw the Celtic thing, when they split the centre-backs, did you know, like, right, okay, this is going to be the way to go, coaching-wise? Oh, good point. Yeah, I think it I think it was at the same time where it was on TV as well, right? Ah, Barca dominating. Super team. Um, but no, I didn't, I didn't think it would become so so common like the norm right like you think yeah. about that 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 team in barcelona have influenced a kid 
a coach in, in California, in Japan, in Australia, yeah. in South Africa, like every team now is playing playing that way, even in youth football. Even in youth football, like you know. And it's found and it's almost frowned upon and against like the gospel if you don't play that way now. Like if you don't yeah. do that now, you're absolutely yeah. slated, which yeah. which we can get into if you want, but I, I have a bit of an issue with that because I don't know what you think, because I, I, the way that we're talking about, we can call it the Pep way, right? Or the Cruyff way, Barca way, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I personally would like to play in a similar way to that. Very, very, very similar. And I've had this discussion before with my mates and stuff. Like if, if I got to coach, the only, the only thing for me is I would probably be, and you can say, it, and I think this is what Liverpool do with Klopp, which a lot of people may or may not realise is, we do play that way, but we're also quite direct. Like when we have Van Dyke, he just puts it forward to Salah mm-hmm. Mane and, and they're dunno, they're just good at like dealing with balls in there and they get quite lucky sometimes, but mm-hmm. it's quite direct. Do you think that like what do you think about it almost being like snobbery to have to play that way? Yeah, very interesting. Um so you think about you think about the, the DA going back to Again, I've had an interesting journey where I've kind of been looking as an outsider at things yeah. and then being involved in things. You know? I remember being, it was like 2012. I wasn't involved in the DA, but I'd go and watch. Mm-hmm. Again, it's that, it's that mindset I would like to pass on to younger coaches. Yeah, Go and watch the best coaches. So somebody mentioned uh, Sean Tequilas. He's mm-hmm. one of the top mm-hmm. coaches. So I, I had a player who played for him, little Yannick. I would do private lessons for him. So I went to watch and then I started watching DA games. And I didn't know at the time that they had a national curriculum that they had to follow. Right. I'm just like, why is everyone playing the same mm-hmm. formation and same style? That surely you're gonna that's gonna catch up on you. Um, in a positive and a negative way. In a positive way, yeah, there'd be good good transition into maybe national teams or teams that play that way. Uh-huh. But what if you play against a team who's more direct or plays a different style or high pressure? Um, surely you're gonna you're gonna come unstuck, you know? Mm-hmm. So I me personally, I think the key thing to youth development is is balance. Yeah, and it's something I think about all the time. Like I have this discussion all the time about um, when, why, and where should we do things. Like for example, for me, the the dream goal for a player is that they could play for Man City or Liverpool. Okay, you know what I mean, like for mm-hmm. example, for example, like they they could play in a four three three. Man City style, but somewhere along the line, they've also had loads and loads of experience of counter-attacking, battling for the ball, yeah. um, unstructured training, um, unique um, unstructured small parts of the game, where it's maybe a 3v3 and you're not in position. So I think that the dream scenario for me is a player at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 has enough individual personality yeah, have enough tools in their toolbox to to solve problems, but is also open-minded and smart enough to understand his role in a four-three-three. The problem I find is if you teach the kid that Pep style from seven to twelve, he's yeah. missing thousands of hours to be creative, to make mistakes. You're almost making life too easy for him. And then at fifteen, where he's suddenly against a team who's equally as good at pressing. He doesn't have the flair. He doesn't have the deception, this, this guy's, you know. And it's, it's really interesting when you start thinking about right side of brain, left side of brain, 
creative thinkers. Yeah, and yeah. Now as a father, I'm thinking about that. And I just read an article yesterday about two to seven year old being a very important time to, to, to boost that creativity in your brain. So for me, what's the balance? I'm all yeah. about the balance. I, I am not, I don't want a, a team to play all of their life. Two, three, one, four, three, one, four, three, three. I wouldn't want that for, for my son, unless I know he's going to get signed by UCLA or Barcelona or Ajax. I would want him to be more adaptable. I want his journey to be more, or any kid's journey to be more of a roller coaster. Yes. More mistakes, more, more kind of problem solving, more struggle. So when you come back to like, what would be the dream? You'd maybe be doing like, maybe you're doing um, a, a four month cycle during the year on possession. Mm-hmm. And then you may be doing a four month cycle where you're on individuality, creativity. It's something I talked about yesterday. We were brainstorming. Um, let's say you did um, August, September, October was huge focus on um, possession and pep style uh, playing through the thirds. You're not going to stop kids from dribbling, right? Not you're going to, you're going to expect mistakes. You're yeah. Be patient. And you're not going to, you're not going to make it so robotic, but in training, you're, you're wanting to play from the, the, the keeper. In, game, in warm-ups, you want to play from the keeper. But on the Saturday, you let kids make mistakes. If the keeper decides, I'm just going to punt it, you should, I don't think you should say that's long. Okay, let him, let him understand. And then I would say that, okay, maybe you've got your competitive phase. Maybe, um, you know, into State Cup, what would it be, October, November, you go, you do what's best maybe to go and compete. And then I would love to take a team into like a December, January, February, March, like really individual focus. Imagine let, letting the kids like, okay, 3v3 just play or 5v5 just play or um, you're actually a man down. 5v6, five, yeah. five you have to dribble and get past the guy. And then maybe in, in spring, it's a balance. Maybe mm-hmm. you're trying to get that balance, you know, and that's the kind of um, fight that goes on in my head as a coach all the time. Yes, I want them to, to look like the TV Yes, I want. I would love to turn up, and it looks like the TV. And I've had teams that have done that. I've had I've had moments like with my Barcelona Bay area guys or my Quakes guys. Like this looks like the TV. These guys are playing like adults. Of course, like, it's not realistic. It's not realistic to think that. And you're actually doing an injustice to the youth development, how the kids' brains work, how they're all completely unique people. You're doing injustice if you think it should be like about the TV. And it's like crazy. This the the kind of feedback I get. Uh, like in the same week, in the same week, Josh, I'll get like three three coaches tell me like, oh, I heard your play, team played really direct at the weekend. And they'll get another three coaches was like, wow, I heard, heard your team was like playing like Barcelona and knocking the ball about. Ultimately, it's the kids that are playing. I'm not playing. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the field. Why would I force a kid to play how I want to play? You need to give them the tools and training and then let them decide, you know? Just one more thing. It was I thought it was interesting. Like we we trained on Saturday. We're playing the we're playing the State Cup champions. It's like okay. year eleven, yeah. Yeah. Um, who are a very strong, they're a direct team, and we set out to play because it's all the only way I know how to coach now is to build from the back and to play through the third. It's only you know I've been influenced by you know Puj and Holocker and all these top coaches. So it's the only way I know how to train. I like my players to be able to like recognize a occasional long pass. But I'm always building from the back. On Saturday, we had that training session. On the Sunday, we played on a field that was like really bad. It was like a farm, you know. Okay. It was like a bad field, um, small field against a high-pressure team. So I'm like, fair enough. The keeper gets the ball, first goal kick, and he looks to his 
two centre-backs, and they're both being marked. So he pings a ball over their left-back into a right winger who gets down the line, crosses, we almost score. Now, you could argue that you could say, oh, Mark plays direct, or you could say that keeper was, a, was given the freedom and trust from his coach to make autonomous decisions based on what he sees at that moment. Yes. And that's something I'm passionate about. Now, am I going to tell him, oh, no, you should have played short? Well, that's up to him. And I love to create the culture where if he had played short, got the ball lost and scored, and they'd scored, I don't care. If he'd played short and managed to get out and find the six, brilliant. But we have to create a culture where it's player first. It's, I don't think it should feel like the coach coach's ego's on stake. Mm. Every week, you know. That's awesome. That, so interesting, you know. That's awesome to ask you about. Like, how do you? Because I I agree with everything you're saying, right? And I think the most important thing about what you've just said is that, you, to summarize it, I think you you can, you know, you can play the pep way or or, or whatever way, right? That there can be some sort of system, but ultimately the most important thing is to say to the kid, now look, we've worked on this. However, in the moment, you have to make the decision. And if that is to clip the ball into the right winger and not play to the centre-back who's marked, then that's, in my opinion, the right answer, right? And, and, and like you said, you can say that that's direct, but, I mean, it's a great pass, right? If the kid has literally has nailed it, he's, he's, he's in the moment, he's made the right decision, or he's made the decision, sorry, which has turned out to be the right one, instead of having the fear of, I have to play here, because this is what I get told to do. And... Yeah. You touched on the ego. I think that every, we've all probably been there. Me, me, and you probably. I can, I can probably say a couple of times we were in there in the game. And sometimes the coach's ego does take over, you know. And and that's a hard part. And I think with social media nowadays, which makes it interesting, Christy, which I find is I see some of these coaches post online stuff that they're doing. And I'm not trying to like have a dig at anyone because I don't know them. But I'm just talking about random coaches. And it's like all oh, one won a trophy with the boys this weekend. But it's just the coach stood with the trophy. So, yeah. so like, who, so, like, so you, you, surely you should post, like, you with the kids. I don't know, right? Do you know what I'm trying to say? So it's, just, it, it's, it's interesting, but how, does, how do you do all that stuff, all the things you've been saying, but at the same time, like, get results? Because even Jamie Carragher said on Monday Night Football, unfortunately for a youth coach, you can have your philosophy in your system, but it comes down you're getting judged on your results at the end of the day. So how do you, how do you do it? How do you think you balance it as a coach? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, a really, really good question. So you think about the, I know it's funny to talk about youth football in this way, but we'll, we know each other. We've, we've kind of coached in the same area, but you think yeah. about the Barcelona Bay Area team, mm-hmm. like some of those young kids, all those parents knew was winning. That was the currency of success. Okay. I knew I was going to be, if I was to get the support of players and attract even better players, there's only one thing. I, the only currency I could, could exchange with was winning. Winning okay. leagues, state cups, whatever. But I knew, but what was interesting, once, the, once I got them some success, I earned their trust. Mm. And then I could have a parent meeting. And with all these parents who only knew, like you could, I could take you to some of these houses and you would see like 30 trophies lined up. Yeah. If you come to my house, I could you won't see a single trophy in this house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, have, yeah. I have no interest in, in, in collecting trophies or hoarding trophies. Like, all my players on my team, they have massive they're things bigger than the Champions League, Josh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that was – now, they trusted me. They kind of thought, okay, this guy's 
pretty good tactically. He's pretty good at winning games. So then I had, I make the announcement to them. Now I'm going to do everything I can to put us in a situation where we lose. Okay. Can you imagine their face? And so like, for example, the, my old six or five, remember before the calendar year, it was um, all fives that were called. Yeah, when yeah. the calendar year um, age group changed. I had actually an 0605 team. So okay. half the team was 06 and half the team was 05. They played 04 MPL. Mm-hmm. Some of the guys are playing two years up, which is not common. You know, there's been some coaches locally of, who've built teams to play one year up. Yeah. But these, these half of the team was playing two years up. And I had to tell the parents, like, almost forget about winning now. Yeah. I'm going to try and develop your, your kid, like, push him to the next level by we're going to get beat. We might finish mid-table, you know? You, you talk about balancing results, like um, all comes down to the parents. I, I, I don't think there's necessarily pressure on us from the club. Okay. I think it's more like, I think the biggest, the biggest pressure we get is more business. Like I, I don't know many clubs that would sack a coach because he didn't win the league or didn't win state cup. Or I think Agreed. it's more like player the tension mm-hmm. and then being able to build age groups, you know? Now, some people, there is some people can do it with um, style of play and their co- and individual development. You can do that. But yeah, winning's the easiest way, right? Yeah. But then the, the key to it is parent education. But the, the problem is, Josh, is football, youth football and any football is so subjective. I went and met with a parent for lunch at the Britannia Arms. Um, really good guy. I, I coached two of his kids. And he was talking to me about like, oh, you need a handbook for parents. Okay. And I said, it's impossible because you would need like three different handbooks. You would yeah. need one handbook that describes clubs. And I don't want to name names today, but you could say this club is mostly focused on possession. This one is very competitive. This one, you know, so you have, you'd need a handbook on clubs and just, and even then it's very general, right? Mm-hmm. Not every club, you might have a different experience based on the coach, but just based without even naming clubs, me and you could probably say, okay, these three clubs are probably going to do this. Yeah. These, so you need then you would need a handbook on coaches. You would need to say this coach is more fitness based. This coach is more always plays a four three three. And then you would need a handbook on who are the best external experts. Okay. Like if your kid has an injury, who who would you go to? Because the doctor's going to tell you to take two weeks off and take Advil, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, yeah. physical therapist. Who's good on nutrition? Who's the best personal trainers? Who's mm. the best camps? So that's something maybe me and you have a brainstorm that. But you need three handbook. It's it's an impossible um, journey for parents. Yes. Because there, there's so many leagues now. You think about being a, a, a dad trying to think, okay, well, what's the development? Is there Because it's not like any other sport where you can just, it's A to B to C. To, in youth soccer, you could go MPL for two years, get to a college and then play pro, or you could be MLS next for three years and then suddenly get cut at 16 and your kids quit. Yeah. It's not playing yeah. football yeah. anymore. So it's, I think it's fascinating, like the formula for parents. Is, it's an almost impossible task. So with this parent, um, linking it all back to my journey as a coach, uh-huh. I said to them like, 99% of kids don't have a plan for themselves. They just mm. follow the badge. You know, they follow, okay, ECNL, Girls Academy, MLS Net. But imagine if you could have a plan for a kid from 6 to 18 based on his um, tact- technical execution, 
-hmm. his decision making, his knowledge of team tactics, his physical um, parameters, you know, speed, agility. Imagine if he had a long plan. He's probably going to get to where he should be. Yeah. But problem is, how many kids do you know that bounce about from club to club and the plan changes? Yeah, loads. But probably because of what we what we've been saying is that it comes down to potentially the parents' view of your kid, my kid getting better is the winning, right? Which yeah. then, which you said, which then puts pressure on the coach to kind of do that from the parents. I agree. Like, I never felt like it was ever from any of the clubs, but it was the parents' expectations to win. So when, when they're looking for a plan, their plan is winning. Find the most winning team, yeah. Yeah, but, and, and I don't mean to, and it's the same here. I've seen it here too as well, but, you know, in living in America, a lot of it is the winning culture, right? The number one team, the, the number one this, the number one that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just the way it is. So that's what the parents always look to. So, how, like it, it's really tough when you do coaching and I think when like you say there's a lot of I won't even say money on the line actually because I know here as well it's the same in the youth game where you know you know what it's like here you pay a hundred pounds a year in subs yeah. so it's not about money but parents still just want to win like it's interesting you say the handbook things I think that you're right on that right because it's all so subjective and so different to every club every coach every kid so how do you like, how, how do you as a parent then, like, how do you try and navigate that, do you think? Like, what, what are the little things you should look for as a parent to help navigate that? Because, yeah. like you say, there, is no, there isn't a handbook to tell you what to do. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Um, I think you need, every parent needs, like, a neutral um, expert to be on their corner. Yeah. Somebody who doesn't have financial skin in the game if that makes sense yeah yeah no you mean and, yeah and i get a lot of parents who call me up to be that guy no okay and i don't mind doing it you know it's actually cool for me now that i'm driving to san jose i can use that time to help people mm -hmm. so i've got that window where i'm in the car for half an hour so that's when i'll schedule and i'll literally speak to kids from all the top clubs and they'll ask me for advice you know yeah and you wouldn't believe josh every single week like i'll get um i'll get uh, i'll give you some examples just random you know um hey um our son is on the this mls next club and um, but we're not sure what's happening with the pandemic and that should should he start looking for clubs should he start looking for new clubs and i'll, I'll typically say like like especially now just wait you know yeah you haven't played a game in a year. Yeah. So why not wait another season or six months? Like, don't just jump for the sake of it because you're, you don't know if your team's, you know, going to be behind. Like, that's what it was. Like, will my team be behind because we mm. haven't played it? I said, you're, you're, in a, you're in a fantastic club with a great yeah. coach. I would stay there for six months and then give me a call in six months. You know, so a lot of the time it's just like reassuring the parent, stay calm, you know. You'll have another parent who'll be like, oh, my kid only plays left back um, and such and such. So I'll be like, okay, well, is there any way you could play futsal? Could yeah. you play futsal? Could you, could you ask if you could play on a, a B team? And that's a shock for the parent. I'll tell the parent, hey, okay, you're on the top team. Could you ask the guest play with the team down and play um, center mid? And it yep. blows their mind sometimes. Like, what, you want us to play down a level? Yeah, because development is about playing games and playing. different positions and different problems, you know? So I, I think when for a parent, it's it's difficult one, right? Because most people, even myself, I'm, you know, I'm not completely unbiased. Yeah. You know, I'm sure I'm going to 
going to want these kids. If I'm doing a camp in summer, I'm obviously subconsciously wanting them to come to the of camp. Course. Or I, of course. I try and be, I think my, the reason why I got into football to, is definitely to help kids into coaching, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I'm always trying to be there for a parent and try and give them as honest answers as I can, you know? Yeah, yeah. My life. So I think parents, if you, if you don't have, I mean, think about like, think about a parent who, I mean, this is quite personal, but imagine a parent only knew you yeah. as a coach and that was their own, only knew um, the club you were at and you as a coach. Then you you might be biased, right? Yeah. You've, you've got your own experiences. So I, I might suggest to parents is try and find somebody who's who's been there, done it, and is like a good person who's not going to just bullshit you to make a quick buck you know yeah yeah of course and i i never give the parents the answers mm-hmm. i just help them think i just say the this is the things these are the things i would think about is yeah. your kid having fun is your kid getting a lot of playing time is he learning from the coach does the coach give homework and i don't mean homework in like a negative way i mean it like does he give you challenges at home watch this liverpool game and, and if he ticks those boxes and your kid's having fun then you're normally in a good spot you know but as you say, they, 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 we have a culture where um, the, the Bay Area is one of the most competitive places in the world for development in terms yeah. of technology and um, whatever. So parents are used to, if you speak to any one of the parents as we, parents we coach, Josh, right? How many of them would be in the same job for all their life? Yeah. Almost, maybe 10%, 20%. Yeah. They're always trying to get a pay rise. They're always trying to get more stock or sell their company. So we live in a culture where that's the norm for them. Yeah. So for them to maybe be like, imagine if your team's fifth in the league for four seasons. They no see progress. that as a failure, yeah. yeah. But as yeah. you know, the, maybe the kid now, maybe the kid came to you and he could only shoot with his right foot. Now he can shoot with his left. Or maybe he's, he's better leading how to press an opponent. Or So it's de- development is almost like, how do you measure it? How do you yeah. measure individual development? And that's the thing I've always been trying to crack and always trying to make. Like like last night, sorry to go on, but just something that's quite interesting. Last night, I have four core drills that I do once a month to check for um, decision-making, basically. Okay. And, and positional understanding. So I've got these four drills, and I feel that that could be out through the whole club. You could have these four drills that you do once a month the check to see if your kids basically know when to detect the ball, mm-hmm. when to pass the ball early, and when to disguise their intentions. So it's like, imagine if you could now put that into a parent language. Yeah. You could make that parent friendly. And I know yeah. it's been done. There's, there's a lot of, the problem is a lot of the, 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 a lot of the measurable things like are very basic, you know, like how many, how many scissors you can do in 60 seconds. It's not really transferred to the game. Yeah. Yeah, the decision making is the key. Yeah, performance. You know, yeah, you have 100. technical execution. You have speed of execution. You have um, timing of execution, but it doesn't necessarily transfer to the game. So you need the need to have a way where we can um, measure development through decision making. Because mm-hmm. if I can, if I can like dribble, like you know, there's a video of Aryan Robin in, in YouTube where he dribbling inside and he puts it in the top corner and one of those goal shot things. Uh, yeah, that's good. But if he can't pick the right moment to do that in the game and he can't execute that against three guys chest chasing him down, you know? Yeah. So that's where I think like there's a, there's some interesting work to be done there on how to educate parents on individual development. Yeah, absolutely. How like I mean more maybe more so in the where where you know we met each other out in, in Cali in the Bay Area. 
maybe more so there again I've, I've not been here long enough since I've been back and been able to go out and see the coaching so I don't know what it's like here but you know certainly when you're starting out you have to coach right now four or five teams to make a living yeah. to be able to live out there so yeah. well, you know and, and, and vice versa here you know how do you make like which you know how do you make a living out of it here a lot of it is volunteering and you kind of have to know someone that knows someone or just get a lucky break to get in at some sort of club right to, to start making some money and even then it's minimum wage or whatever it might be so how do you like how do you as a coach all the things you're saying like how can we you know in both cultures how can you have because what i'm trying to say basically is that if you coach four teams everything you're saying is right but it's we both know it's it's near on impossible to be able to do that yeah. it's impossible yeah. and then that leads to what's the you know as a coach that then leads to right what's the easiest path pass path in this game today I'll just play these kids, get 4-0 up, sub the other guys on, it's easy, I've got it done with, and then we move on, I'll regroup next week, right? We've all been there and done that. So how do you do it if you have to coach other teams? The big difference between me, when when would I have met you, Josh? uh, 2013, maybe? Yeah, around about that time, mate, yeah. Yeah, so the, the huge difference between me at 25 and then me at 30 and then me at 35 and almost 40 now is work smarter not okay. harder okay delegate like yeah that's the biggest thing like for example when i had the barcelona bay there oh twos right i literally did an hour meeting with 18 players okay one hour meeting i did for every single player okay i, I didn't have a kid i was single well i think i just started dating michelle but right. she understood <laughs> that i'm gonna go and have these meetings you know yeah, yeah. no me fast forward five years my whole mindset now is not for me to give the, all the kids the answers yeah get the kids to think for themselves so i create problems that they have to come solutions for so for example like i've, I've got my u12 just now right they i do uh i do a two-hour zoom it's over four it's four thirty minutes so it's a, okay these are four thirty minute zooms teaching them how to um break down their strengths and weaknesses and then they've got to do a, a four-week project and then present to me okay it's a completely different mindset to when i first started coaching like i'm going to give you this evaluation i'm going to tell you what you did right and wrong and i'm going to feel great about it and no i'm now i'm going to te- give them the tools to analyze their technical performance you know their, so their technical execution their decisions their knowledge of team tactics um, so there's a, and it's much it's much less work for me, and it's actually more um, powerful for their future to give them the tools to analyze. You know, I've got like a U11 player sent me the most detailed presentation on Phil Foden you'd wow. ever see. It was like a UEFA Pro License and um, presentation, right? On okay. Phil Foden, like and everything you can think about Phil Foden. Yeah. The the, the heat map, the heat map of where he gets the ball. Um, he took stats on whether he took a, a half turn to with his right foot or left foot. Yeah. Um, he talked about his, his tendencies to play like a disguised pass when he dribbles. So what did that take me? It took me 30 minutes yeah. to teach the kid how to, how to think like me. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be like if you've got four teams, you need to move away from the habit of like, okay, I need to, I need to put all my heart and soul into analyzing these kids. No, teach the kid how to analyze himself. Mm. and then just check for understanding and yeah. that was the biggest change and i think like that's 
that's what I'm constantly involving. Like even even now as a coach educator, like yeah, some some of my people that I work with think that I should be at the field going down working from like three in the afternoon to nine at night, seven days a week. That's working hard. It's not working smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've I've moved all my online edge. I've I've moved. 70% of my coach education is done, done through a course now, Josh. Okay. So they have lessons. And then I just go to the field to check for understanding or to check for quality or, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm teaching them how to think. Mm. I'm teaching them how to analyze because it, it's much quicker. Like I remember that Barcelona Bailey, I would literally do age group sessions, right? So it'd be the 05, A team, B team, C team, D team. And they were what? me like guys you know young guys like Andrew Fias you know yeah watching all the time and, and getting ideas but ultimately that might take two years right mm-hmm. for that all to sink in it might take two three years but or if I start challenging them like a course okay um what did I do and why you know why did I put the cones there what conditions did I have what progression so I've complete I've become much more efficient in the way I do things and that would be my biggest advice to people that like, don't don't feel like you have to work yourself into the ground yeah find the most efficient way to achieve your outcome yeah you know and and i'm 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 behind you know there's people miles ahead of me so but i'm trying to use technology as much as i can to catch up with people who are ahead of me you know yeah yeah no it's a great point you made me think of i think i had five teams one year and uh i think all five were in state cup and you know what that's like it was it was mental driving up and down there unfortunately one of my old five boys teams did well got to the final one like the silver bracket so i literally i remember i think i went up that way modesto sacramento wherever it is i went up that way like 12 or 13 weekends in a row and sometimes just for like one game you know what it's like one game on the saturday one on the sunday but because you're away for so long you miss all your other games it's a whole day and i remember getting on the plane to come home, being like, that's not the right way to do it. That's, that's five teams. I, was, I, I didn't want to come back. I was I don't want to coach ever again. So, I was so done because, like you say, I took the five teams. I did my best with them. I was working hard, but I just burnt myself out so much. And it's interesting you say that about kind of almost peeling back and being clever, and you're not being lazy. You're just, you're just like you say, delegating and, and finding a way to work smarter. Which is, which is really important. Sometimes you need to take a step back and realize I'm doing a bit too much here and it's more beneficial if you work smarter. But even like we had a discussion yesterday for those coaches that are on four te- teams or three teams or, to give them a day off, you know? And it sounds crazy to think about because in our culture, everyone was working seven days a week, right? Yep. Um, yep. But you're more efficient if you give that coach a day off. Mm-hmm. You're going to mm-hmm. get better quality. But again, just, just to tie it all together, like, you need to create with those five teams. You need to create a system where they're actually presented to you. Yeah. They're saying, "Hey, Josh, here's what I think my strengths are. Here's what I want to focus on," and then you've got a library of YouTube drills that you can just kind of copy and paste and, and send in, and, and you're creating that culture of responsibility, autonomy. You know. Mm, yeah. And, and when you explain it, it's like I remember sitting down with a U12 group at um, San Jose Earthquakes. And I knew I had some parents that were really passionate and kind of overzealous with like yeah. coaching from the side. So I just, I kind of threw it back at them. I said, I want every parent to, to come up with a list of 10 social 
skills they want their social mental skills they want their kid to be known for at 16 17 like punk show mm. um you know um yeah, what would it be like uh hard working focused you know and um, team player and i kind of flipped it on its head you know so i was like you want your kid to use initiative how are they going to get initiative if at 12 year old you're shouting and telling them what to do you know yeah so you kind of turn things on their head and you actually you think about long term it's much better if the kids become reliant on on a system of of, of analyzing and learning rather than just coach mark for example yeah, yeah. Oh, I, need, I need coach mark i need coach mark helped me he, he knew he knew how to help me the best so i i learned from that people became too reliant on me mm-hmm. because i was so involved you know and it's a little bit like you could see it in some pro coaches um teams as well like they they love playing for that coach and when he leaves the kind of dip or whatever you want to create kids that are really good at problem solving really good at dealing with struggle mm-hmm. like they're used to struggle being uncomfortable is part of being a pro you know being part of a college player you're used to um like every monday you should expect new challenges you know yeah even you're basically what you're saying is you're you're helping them be a person right you're helping the kid grow yeah. up that's what you're yeah. doing and that's ultimately from what you're doing age. yeah yeah and young age from 10 years old, you know? Yeah, and, I, and I, I said this to the boys I spoke to last week about Gullen, is I, looking back now and even a couple of years ago, I realized that, but when you start out, both of us, you don't think of that, right? You're, you're, you're thinking of how, how can I have a career, you know, all this stuff, and then as you get more into it, you're like, I am creating, I'm helping these kids grow up, and yeah. how I act to them at training has an impact, because they're seeing me three, four times a week. You know what I mean? Sometimes oh, you're a huge some, part of their life, right? Yeah, you're a huge part of their life. So it's it's really important that because I, I find that I, I follow a lot of guys on Twitter these days, right? Like coaches and stuff, especially since I'm doing this, I'm trying to find people to speak to. And it's really interesting how many of them are so big on the tactical side of the game. Like it's all they post is tactics and this and doing these drills and don't get me wrong, great drills. And sometimes, Christy, I look at them and I'm not saying they're wrong. This is just my opinion. But I look at them, I'm like, oh, you're just overcomplicating it a bit too much. Do you know what I mean? Like I think you could do something better with your time in terms of what we've just said about how you can have the, the kid be a better person, which will help them be in football. And I'm thinking you're complicating it. I don't know if you see that now or have seen that before. Oh, it's, it's a huge thing. Um... Yeah, I could, I could always speak about this for hours, just this topic, you know? Yeah. But I think the, the biggest thing has to be, like, how good is that individual with the ball at his feet? How good is he recognizing, like, small situations, you know? Yeah. Because I, I find the, the tactical... Well, it's, a, it's an interesting one because it comes down to, like, Spanish versus kind of... Spanish-Portuguese versus English coach, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think English coaching now is... It's gone really about the individual, individual, and we in England they feel like we can we can teach them the game later. Yeah, we can teach them like when you do like shaping sessions, right? And you do like working on team shape when you do it on your licenses. It's so quick, you know. You can mm. you can teach a back four how to be organized in like four sessions, right? But to teach a kid to be good at dribbling against Suarez might take you five years, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a center back to dribble, to beat Suarez one-on-one. Yeah. That might take years and years of, of... So I feel I'm biased towards the kind of that English style. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. biased towards teach the kid to be, like constantly develop the kid. 
to be better at his strengths and to understand the game holistically in mm. terms of physical, his body, um, how he interacts with players, mental skills, preparation, time management. I'm very, I'm very holistic in how I teach. And I'm very um, English style, English academy style, because I just don't feel that I can guarantee that that kid will play for a possession-based team. Yeah, you can. As you can, and I feel like I'm doing him an injustice. Now, the other side of the argument is very interesting, Cannonball. And I don't know, do you remember any times where you've watched a Scottish team in Europe not yeah. even touch the ball? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Like the 90, and that comes, that's, that's evidence that the other way works, that possession-based mm-hmm. possession football from a young age, like you could argue that Espanol, Sevilla, and um, Sport and Lisbon, all these teams, because they have a different model, which is basically the game model is the most important thing, and we'll just recruit the best players within that, mm-hmm. or we'll buy players. So, so their style in Spain and, and Portugal, I would say it's like basically what you're talking about. It's like the obsession with tactics and the game model. Yeah. And then they just cut players, okay? They cut players or they buy players or they bring, bring players in at 16 to finish the jigsaw puzzle. Maybe it's two wingers and a striker or a centre mid. But then if you if you really think about it culturally, like I remember as a kid watching games, Aberdeen, maybe the mid-90s, 2000, you wouldn't get the ball if you played Atletico Bilbao. In the, you know, no, you know? no way, no because way. Yeah. in their culture. Uh-huh. And, and if you think about like a, let's look at a Dianza Force, like they're trying to make that Spanish style like in their culture. Yeah. Um, I just don't know if, I think you're kind of robbing the kids a little bit of their, their freedom and their creativity and the development. Um. So it's it's very interesting, you know. I think I think I'm I'm open to both, and I like to try and take the best bits from both. Mm-hmm. Try and mm-hmm. stay connected to modern style, but I just think kids, unless you know, and I think in American culture, I think the kids need to you need to put more focus on individual development. Yeah, well, I think, I think just to finish, up, I don't think yeah. coaches enjoy it. Like at least guys are on Twitter and stuff. I think they don't enjoy teaching a kid how to beat a winger and cross it in or how to mm. um, plan your breakfast or, you know, how to do core exercises. It's just not, it's not sexy. It's not, it's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I that, agree. Teach a kid a thousand times how to, how to play a diagonal ball. That's the boring part. You know, the most sexy part is like when you, I got, I got um, a video sent the other day, it was like eight player rotations of Atalanta. It was like player rotations in midfield. That's fun for coaches. Love that. Style. Yeah, and they yeah. Love that. Now, I really want, actually, want to get back to that. I would right. enjoy coaching a, a U17 team and just working on that. But as a coach, currently U11s, U12s, it doesn't sink. It's it's a little bit subconscious. Like, but their their brains are not at that age where they can really take that in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I I give you one more example, Josh. And this was a little experiment I did. All right. I played, a, I played a kid, a really talented winger, like very talented winger, and I got his dad to film two games. On the um, Saturday, he played 11 v 11 left wing in a 4 3 3. Okay. And on Sunday, he played um, 9 v 9 left winger in a 2 5 1. On the Saturday, played 11 v 11. They, the score was 1 1. He touched the ball maybe five times. He had no successful dribbles, and he was literally just standing on the touchline watching a game of football, watching watching two centre backs and a goalkeeper play football. Actually, if I'm okay. honest, okay, okay, he was just like a, he was like an outsider. Yeah. Now with my eleven v eleven hat on, 
I probably need about eight to 10 weeks with that team, whether I can work on the build-up and get, get him on the ball maybe another 10 times. On the Sunday, the score was 6-6. He scored a hat-trick. He probably had about 60, 70 touches on the ball. Okay. He had an amazing experience. So something I'm really passionate about is if we could actually take away 11 v 11 football until U15. Interesting. It would, the, it would change the, the people that actually coach. I think the, the guys who are obsessed with that game model and Twitter and all that, they would probably start coaching at U15, which would be more age appropriate. And then mm. we need to find a way to get in youth coaches who are more about the person, more about the individual development. Now, the argument against it would be, the only one I can think is what if you get a kid at 12 who's actually built like a U15, you know? Mm. Move him up. Yeah, move him up. 7, yeah. 7 v 7 or 9v9, just move him up. Yeah. And play people based on their physical age or their yeah. mental maturity. So I, I posted something about the Swedish culture. You know, they're doing that now where they're, they're holding on to 7v7 an extra year. They're mm. holding on to 9v9 an extra two years. And like, you should have seen this. It was like a different kid. Mm. Just because of the, like in 9v9, he looked like Frank Liberty. And in 11v11, he's just standing there. Yeah, interesting, like, eh? So, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, I just think we need a system that's just a way to manage yeah. who coaches. A way to educate and manage who coaches between 6 and U15. Massively. And people who are coaching for the kids, not for their, not for their future. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not innocent of it. You know, you, I'll be honest with you. Like when I'm coaching those, remember back in the day when I was coaching those old fives? Uh, of course I'm thinking like this could be a good little way for me to market myself, you know? So yeah. I'm not saying I'm, I'm innocent, but I now recognize the problem. There's too many coaches coaching for their ego or to get to the next level. Whereas if we could find a way, if you tie it all back together, if we could find a way to measure the individual development on a multidimensional holistic way, like tests, imagine like, Imagine me literally taking your, what did you have, an 05 team? Yeah, I had an 05 team, yeah. Imagine if I'm working for US Soccer and yeah. I'm the regional director and I take in your team. I say, Josh, I'm, I'm going to come in. We're doing a random spot check on your club. I'm going to take your team in. We're going to do two sessions and two classroom sessions. So two field, two classroom, and then I'm going to do a test. So some of the questions might be, um, what should a youth athlete have for breakfast three hours before a game? Um, what are the benefits of a, of a nine being 10 yards offside in the build-up? Okay. What give me three, three options for a centre-back when he gets the ball from the keeper? Or, or maybe I'm analysing them on the field in, a, in three drills. Like, okay, maybe it's a 4v4 plus three, and I'm analysing how quickly they transition. And there's almost like a little, you know, almost like double pass, but in a more individual development. Yeah. That, get, that gets exciting now, you know? Some good monitor youth development. That that does. It's how much have you gone into like the nutrition side? Because I know you did for a bit. Like I, I never, I never went down that path. And then towards the end, I started to because I was doing like the one-on-one training, which we'll talk about in a bit. But because I was doing that, I felt like that scenario when I was a one v one trainer, I felt like those things were more important to know than it was to be a, a team coach. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I feel like I had the time to be able to do that. So, like, what have you – how did you get into that? And are you still, like, into it? Oh, yeah. Um, so, I think 
when I when I got to university, I'll be honest and said I had limited knowledge on many things. So I'm 21. I'm at University of Aberdeen. Limited knowledge, or almost zero knowledge, huh. on strength and conditioning, nutrition, team tactics. It was all very, very minimal. But what I felt like I had, I had a really good connection with the ball. Okay. And I thought I had a good, I had a soccer brain. So I, I could, I remember like, um, our Muzza was our striker at um, uni, you know. He was uh-huh. amazing. He'd score like, scoring four or five again. And he's like, oh, Christy, you've got a soccer brain. So many people have told me I had a soccer brain. Many mm. people have told me I had good feet. It was yeah. everything in between. <laughs> had to fit, you know? uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I had that passion of like, I basically had a growth mindset before I knew what growth mindset was. Mm-hmm. I had a mindset of like, a kind of Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldo mindset of how can I improve every little detail of my game? So when I went into the lectures, right, I would sit in these lectures for two, three hours, bored out my brain, unless I could try it practically. So when I got these things, some nutrition, like handbooks, I would try it before games. And going back, nobody knew I was doing this, but on junior games, I was trying different things. My coach right. probably was mad, right? But I would try like, <laughs> For example, game one, we're playing this team. I would try um, oatmeal and banana at nine o'clock, and then I pass the ball at 11 mm. and I kick off at three. And then the next week, I might try, you know, a different thing. Maybe I'm trying my oatmeal at 10 o'clock. So I went through. So that's how I learn and how I enjoy learning is to make it practically, practically, mm. um, to, you know, go through it practically, not just in books, you know, and yeah. learn from mistakes. Like my, my whole thing is like learn from mistakes. So I learned quite a lot about. Like, exact, you know, first half, second half. I would yeah. find that with, with certain amount of pasta, I would feel sluggish in the first half, and the second half, I'd feel like I could run for another half an hour, but then I'd probably get subbed, right? <laughs> but, um, but no, it's interesting. So I did a little bit, and then, you know, my mom's very into, very into nutrition and healthy eating. So, um, and then now I'm into a phase where, it's like fascinating what you need to eat as you get old. It's almost like as a 40 year old, you need to eat completely different things. So I think it's huge, huge part of development. I look at a kid. I don't know if you remember a little Edwin. Yeah. I remember Edwin. Little Eddie Mendoza. Right? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, I don't want to speak too much about people, but you think about him, right? The brain of De Bruyne, the feet of De Bruyne. If I was his coach, I'd be setting up two things in his house, a TRX gym, so a gym, I'd have a gym in his house, like Swiss ball, core ball, some, you know, maybe a, like a little TV where you can just quickly get videos from YouTube and watch and stuff. And then I'd, I'd educate him on nutrition, right. on the different types of proteins and vegetables to eat as you, and then you've got, you've got a potential, potential pro there, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is people, coaches don't think holistically. No. They just think, well, if he's, if his body's not changing and he's not quick enough and strong enough by 16, well, goodbye. Yeah, we're not interested. We can get another kid, but what you can't, um, what's harder to teach is that natural instinct, that brain. Like he could see a pass two, three seconds before anyone else, you know. So I always think that you look at a player sorry, holistically, yeah. his strengths, his weaknesses. If I, you know, I'd be really sad if that kid's playing like community college. That should be a high level. Yeah, it should be a high level, but mm. because the coaches are typically only only currency you know we talk about currency their currency is the game model right that's what they get excited about that's what they love um and it's nothing personal it's just my opinion that 
I just think if you see the game holistically, you'll do better for the kid. I think yeah. if you're if you're coaching like it, you know, and even even at the highest level, like you see a lot of coaches are split, right? You see like the guy Jesse Jesse Marsh and and guys like Graham Potter at Brighton, they're they're holistic coaches. You know, whether some coaches are just obsessed with I was on a, a A license um CPD event where you continue your education and uh, Gary Caldwell had an interest in talk about that he was basically saying like when he first got into coaching it was all about the tactics and then hmm. he's wanting to add more tool more to his toolbox he said that he was he was addicted to that drug of thinking that he could beat the opponent coach simply by tactics hmm. and he didn't realize like he, he kind of realized as he went through it's more about nowadays also player management yeah like that that players humans nowadays we want to feel good like all the time now yeah you know, with social, like we see so many things in social media, we want to feel like we want to constantly need to be feel amazing or we're, we're quicker to move jobs nowadays where we're quicker to get upset. We're quicker to be emotional than maybe like, think about, think about some of the tough players playing in Scotland in the nineties. Like yeah. they would just run through a wall for their coach. Yeah. Like Ferguson probably had a much easier time coaching in Scotland in terms of motivation. And then when Ferguson went to Man United, he, he always brought in new assistant coaches, right? Yep, yep. So, yeah, do you, it's interesting you say that because Henri was on Monday Night Football here with Calgary the other night and uh, they were asking him about his coaching and he obviously was just at Montreal in Toronto yeah. and he said that the biggest thing he learned has learned so far from coaching is that with the, the players you coach nowadays, they all grow up learning things on phones and iPads. So he's like, you have to be able to sit in a room one-on-one with them and go through videos for them to learn. He said, whereas to Carragher, is like, well, me and you, you could go out on the pitch and the coach would just kind of tell you what to do and you would just kind of do it. And he said, they don't learn like that anymore. They need to be shown like a video. They need the one-on-one. And yeah. the, the most interesting Henri thing Henri said about it was Wenger would just treat everyone the same. They all pretty much got treated the same in the dressing room. But he said, you can't do that now. You, I have to treat every single person differently and he said that was the biggest thing he's learned from being a coach is the personal development side of things and how it's changed in the last 15 years it's it's you're spot on with it yeah you're spot on you need you need uh um the current model is one curriculum for all yeah you need a, you need a curriculum for each kid now mm-hmm. you need you need a curriculum for each kid really and that has to that's going to be the future you know yeah i, I really want to I'm I'm excited to to work with people who can create a club where you can get everything in house. Right. You can get team tactical training, small group training, and private lessons all in one club. Yeah. And all connected instead of like there being a disconnect. You know. Yeah, yeah. And some parents, I know some parents actually like that disconnect. They feel like they want a, a different opinion, and I think if and I think there's something to that as well, getting mm-hmm. like a, an external opinion, but. For me, the dream would be, imagine if you could get all like, like-minded people, experts in personal training, yes. experts in small group training, experts in team tactical training, all working together to give each kid his own developmental path. Mm-hmm. Like, we, these are his natural strengths. Like, we, there's a situation um, just now where I ranked a player like top three in this team, and he's now gone to rank number 18 just in 12 mm. months. Now, 
for me, you've got to look at why that is. Is it the, is it the pandemic? Is it emotions? Is it is it decision making? Because I, my, one of my passions was, um, and I think every every youth academy should have this system where if a kid ranks like incredibly high at a young age, maybe like before puberty, yep. you shouldn't give up on that kid. Like if a kid, let's say a kid at really? 12, you 12, right? Mm-hmm. Ranks like you're saying this is the best kid in the Bay Area. Yep. Best kid in, in, in London or wherever. And he suddenly becomes like lower level through puberty years. I think it's a huge mistake to give up on that kid. Massively. Huge mistake. And I think you, we need a system. But the problem is academy directors leave. Gen, uh, general managers leave. Um, you know, what's it called? Directors of footballs leave. Uh, director of football leaves and you manage so kids get lost in the mix so you, you need a system where like if a player's identified as one of the best in his brain and his feet his decisions then you need to keep working with that kid yeah yeah like because at the other end we're losing all the top players so many top players because they're, mm. they're too small or they're, they're they don't have the parental support you know so do you yeah sorry man do, do you think that because I want to get on to talking about like what, what you're doing, obviously, yourself as well, so you can talk about it. But do you think that, and again, not speaking bad about, about anyone, but do you think in, in the area you're at, is there almost too much competition and everyone's trying to do their own thing for it ever to really end, end, end good, if that makes sense, for the kids? I mean, of course, kids are going to get the right way and, and get fortunate and, and make the right decisions. But I felt like, certainly towards the end, there was so many clubs popping up and everyone's trying to do something so different. It's like badmouth this club, badmouth this club, because in their opinion, what they were doing was the right way. And there's no real right or wrong way. She's like, do you just think there's too much competition? Ooh, that's, a, that's a good question. Huh. Um, Which it can be a good thing too, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think it it's like it's it's the balance between consistency right. and competition, and we don't have that balance. Like, you know, we're getting we're getting the, the competition has become becoming inconsistent because right. players are player pools are diluted, players move too much, and it's kind of confusing for parents to know which league's the best. So, I think um, it's a very interesting one. If you you think always can't got got to come back to dream scenario when you yeah. ask this question, right? You've got to think in the dream scenario for a place like the Bayer should be to have twelve top youth teams every single year with twelve top youth coaches. Okay. If you think about it that way, you know you think about like imagine um, Salinas, San Jose maybe having three, Oakland maybe having two. You know, North Valley, North Bay having maybe two, San Francisco having one, the Palo Alto, Redwood City. Imagine there was, there was 12 youth teams, 12 youth coaches, very high level, coming in at, um, let's just say, being realistic to today's time, coming in at nines, tens, elevens, twelves, thirteens, fourteens. That's that's a good thing, right? Yeah. That's amazing. Mm. But because of what you're saying, because there's so many clubs pop up, then we're nowhere near that. No. So that's where it becomes interesting. Like, how how could you create that in a system that is so capitalist? Like, everything we do in the Bay Area is it's about, about money. It's about business. It's about entrepreneurial thing. It's about, like, the, the whole 
concept of the tech industry is to disrupt. Have you heard that phrase they use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disrupt things. Yeah. You think about the opposite. You think about a country like maybe Switzerland or even Scotland to ex- extent, right? They can control regionally. Scotland, yes. SFA, like, I'll have like a North region and East region. We are the complete opposite of that, you know? So how do you, how do you create a system that's, um, I mean, the other problem we have is you've, instead of having a promotion relegation system, we've got a kind of almost like a standard system. So the I, leagues are based on like how many coaches you have, how many, um, your, your curriculum, your methodology, you know? So you've got a system where, um, instead of just saying like division one, two, three, four, five and promotion delegation, that would be quite interesting in mm. youth football. What would be the negatives of that? Okay. Maybe some direct teams would probably be in the top division, right? So that would, that your win at all cost teams would maybe start to, to thrive. Um, then the, the advantage is though you're getting kids that are a little bit tougher, right? Kids are a no, little bit. Yeah. yeah. But then on the flip side, I mean, with the, with the CAD M, uh, DA, it was almost like they tried to do the opposite. They tried to take away the kind of winning pressure from, especially in the 11s, 12s, 13s. It's not about winning. There's no league tables. Um, and that was interesting coaching mm. that. But it kind of like, that was too extreme, right? Yeah, that too far one way. Kids. Yeah, so how do you find that balance where you get, um, and that's where it comes down to like putting all the good, all the top minds together. How can we get like a, a balance between like, Maybe in the spring, it's like promotion allegation. And then in the, in, the, in the fall, it's more, you know, player development. And I know MPL have tried to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. They do the, was it the Champions League in spring? Yes. And yeah. then regional in fall or mm-hmm. vice versa. It could be mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, so we've got good minds in NorCal um, trying to work on these things. I know NorCal Premier trying to work on it. Because um, there has to be a way... For me to be, you don't want to be too create a culture that's too soft. Yeah, of course. Too on player development, and then they're net, they're not used to suddenly a team that's aggressive and, and high presses you and, and kind of is all about winning. So it's finding that balance for kids. Um, not easy. What What do you think? What would you do? What would you do with that one? That's a good. It's a good question. I, I don't know, right? Because I sometimes think myself, I was there was times where I maybe should have put the winning or the competition up on a bit of a higher pedestal and maybe cared about it in some moments more than others. But Mm -hmm. I felt like I did a pretty good job of not, but I would say one negative to me was, and to be honest with you, everything you're talking about here is making me think is I I can see why there was reasons that I didn't progress as far as I thought I was going to progress in it because to be honest with you, Christy, I didn't think about it as much as you are talking about it right now. I didn't. I'll be honest with you. Like, I had times in my life where I'd go to watch people like Sean Sequeira's and Fusco coach, and I would take notes, and I was doing that, but it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. So I just think that I don't have the answer, and I think that that is the big question. Is like, how do you find that? It's almost like the perfect balance we're talking about, right? But I think yeah. one thing that you say is interesting that I do think would benefit a little bit from what you said about the tier system is that or the promotion and stuff is that okay you might get some direct teams that are just win at all costs in the top league but is that not also good to play against teams that play different styles do you know what i mean so rather than rather than playing against a team that's always 4-3-3 always playing out the back i i quite liked playing against the 
the teams that just went quite direct and it was quite yeah, a tough problems, game. Right? You've got to think. You've got to think. How do totally. I? How do I get past this team? It sits with like six, seven at yeah. the back. You know? So, so there was this. There was this. Um, I'll I'll tell the story then, and then we'll finish off talking about. You're still. Are you still doing the Euro soccer training stuff? Yeah. 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 So we'll we'll finish off talking about that. So, but I had this moment right where I covered for for one of the boys. Um, it was a game at Hoover Park, right? The legendary Hoover Park. So I've covered for him, and it's his second team. And yeah. we're uh, we're playing. He's in the he's in the first the premier or whatever. Though we're the second team, right? So he's like, look, we're playing. I don't want to say the club. We're playing this club's top team. They're really good, mate. Just do what you can. Like, just you know, see what happens. Type thing. We're, we'd probably get battered. You're a guest coach. Just do what you can. So the game starts, yeah. and 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 as we say, you know, you're trying to you're trying to play out the back with the goalkeeper, and they were they were far better than us, and. They kept pressing. We were losing it. Unfortunately, they didn't. They didn't score. I think actually they maybe went one 0 up, but we were still in it. And I was like, there was a kid at the back, centre back that, that what you were saying earlier. He could play a great pass. He was so he was so pinpoint with a long pass. Like it was it was amazing. And that team played that same system of like which you know it's like a, like ninety nine high pressure. Everyone steps up. Centre backs on the halfway line. And we had the we had a striker that was really fast. And I'm like. We're getting pumped here by them pressing us. We can't get out. We're going to get beat like 10-0. So I thought, I just told him, I said to the kid, play over the top. Get the ball, take a touch, and play a pass. And I said to the striker, run. And the other team and the other coach didn't change how they played, and we won 2-1. And he refused to shake my hand at the end of the game. Right? Refused to shake my hand at the end of the game. Told me my team just played boot ball. And he also knew that I wasn't the coach. So he was like, the coach... The coach that takes his team wouldn't accept that. And I'm like, you were pumping us. So in my opinion, to tell the kids to yeah. do that, that was the right decision. You know what I mean? So to play against different styles yeah. and to be able to adapt in games like that, I think is the biggest thing can for I, coaches and players. Can I, can I add a really cool cool like um, point to that one? Yeah. So we, um, Sounds Earthquakes U12, so we're at GA Cup, right? Yeah. And um, we beat Toronto 3-0. We then play Atlanta, um, and we we get a man sent off, and we lose 1-0. Right, okay. And then we need to beat Columbus Crew to get to the, the quarterfinals. So we, we beat Columbus Crew 1-0. Um, we then beat, I think, Inter-Miami. So we're now in the semifinals of GA Cup mm-hmm. against New York Red Bulls. Mm-hmm. And New York Red Bulls... Um, Playing a four-three-one, so your typical two centre backs. I think it was seven seven aside actually. So it was a two-three-one. They played two centre backs, okay. seven eleven, and they start off like they play beautiful football, and then like ten minutes in, their left back just clips a ball over the top, and our team have never seen this before. Yeah, it's never happened. It's like what's a team played long? Yeah, our keepers charged out smash the guy because he's not he's just not expecting it and we lose the game one nil and i and exactly what you said like i wish my team um had had to see more of that locally yeah didn't see any of that in the da Mm. so it's it's like you say you want the kids to come up with all sorts of different scenarios when they're young right yeah their their coach should have been thanking you yeah he should have he should have went home and said my back we didn't realize when to drop Yes. They should have dropped. After the second one, okay, the first one, you get caught. The second one, now it's a wake-up call. Yes. And the coach, 
And that's what's interesting about the culture. There's a snobbery Massively. in this youth culture about like you're almost if you don't play the ball on the ground the whole game you're not a, you're not a, you're not doing like for the kids where it's all about balance, right? It's all about um, balance. So interesting. One. Yeah, it is, man. That that's cool though. That's interesting. Similar stories, right? So well, let's finish. So you you do your Euro soccer training, right? So um, you know, I know you've had people like Sebastian Legette that that you've done a lot of stuff with, and you posted videos, and even it's been on Keep It on the Deck and that right before with the stuff you did with him. So like. What, what, what are you doing with it? Because I know I'm sure some people will, will listen to this that know you and some parents and stuff that um, you coach or maybe did coach or maybe you haven't coached that will listen in and get to hear this. So, like, what is it all? Like, what, what, what are you doing with it now? What's the plan with it? All that stuff. Yeah, well, good question. Um, so, you're, you're the soccer training is basically um, have a limited bandwidth for, for private lessons. Mm. Um on actually on the field, like I don't work with many players. I, I I typically work with players who really want to reach their potential. Okay. So I've got about 20 players that really fit my style of coaching. So the yeah. way I, I, I work with these players is fairly methodical. Okay. So we'll do like a couple of Zooms per week. I'll challenge them to plan out their week um, and kind of show me what to do. I'll send homework videos. So it's more like on the elite scale. So it's basically like if you're a player who really wants to be a professional and I get these kids at 13, 14, 15, who say they want to be a professional and they actually live it. They actually are planning to be a pro. So I've got a a kid that plays at um, one of the MLS next teams and he's actively planning to be a pro, you know? So that's what I enjoy. And, and, and I can tie it into Sebastian Legette, you know. I really yeah. enjoy that. I mean, if you're if you're a kind of less developed player, then I'll maybe get somebody like Liam Guest. You know, he's he's amazing, you know, energetic, and on a little bit um, further back in his coaching journey. Like, he's just starting. So, he's yeah. got the passion to to help a player get from bronze to gold or from silver to premier. But with, with me, the passion's always be to, to help. It's a personal, and I'm biased. Like, I want to, like, almost give the knowledge – to kids that I didn't get, you know? Yeah. I feel like if the, the generation that I grew up with were so talented. Yeah. Felt like it was the last generation who still had Scotland at the World Cup, still had a good like Aberdeen Rangers, well, let's say Rangers and Celtic were still doing well in Europe. And there was an energy about Scottish football and a passion, but maybe limited coaching and an extreme lack of tactical, you know, um, physical, mental skills. So, with your soccer training, like I, I definitely say, it's like anybody who's really serious about it, then I'm I'm a good fit for them. But it's a lot of commitment, you know. And it yeah, does yeah. cost a lot, you know. It does when you add up, it's an investment, um, mm. and you, you've got to, and you can't come to just one training session a month, you know. It, it's so Doesn't I'm basically work. targeting that group of people that are really serious about getting a trial. You know, I've got a kid um, at Cincinnati this week. So he's doing a week trial with Cincinnati. Um, we've got another kid going to Watford um, for a week trial when things open up. Another kid's at Leeds United now. So that's the kind of market I'm looking at, you know, and that's why working with Seb was such an enjoyable yep. experience, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sorry, I think, I don't know if I said it, but obviously Seb played for like LA Galaxy. He's played for the national team as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's played for the national team and stuff. So. So that's cool. It's uh, it's two different worlds, that right? Like doing that compared to your your team stuff. It's two different worlds. 
the kind of last thing I wanted to ask you about was, do you think that coaches should try and balance both? Because I personally felt that doing the one-on-one stuff, is, is there's a lot of similarities, but it's also very different to coaching teams. And I think that you can almost go down either path, really, but both yeah. of them can kind of, both of them need different things. So like, do you think coaches should maybe try both and work out what I, is best for them? 100, I 100% believe yeah. that any youth coach 15, coaching U15 and under, should have to do at least 30 hours of private training. Right. At least 30 hours of being a small group coach, you know, like mm. the functional stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, before they're allowed to coach kids. Right, okay. I think it should be mandatory that any coach in youth football should have to do that mm-hmm. so that they're at least open to the idea that um, it's important and it works and it's age appropriate and it gives that player confidence, you know? Yeah, yeah. So for me, if, if, you're, a te- if you're a team coach of a U12 team or U14 team and you haven't done a single private lesson or a single group, I think you're actually at a disadvantage on what the kids actually need. Interesting. And I'm really passionate about that. Yeah. And why do I think like that? Because of the journey I've had. Mm. Because I've seen it work. I've seen when players get individual attention, they feel more confident. They try more things in games. They're just more of who they are. They're, they have much more personality. And I think when a kid is only coached the game from a team tactical perspective, they lose some of their soul, you know? And that yeah. sounds a bit deep, but they do. They lose, no, they do. They lose of who they are. And just just having, like, I remember chatting to Ben about this, about, like, Jermaine, you know? Remember Jermaine? Yeah, yeah, Jermaine, yeah. No, like, there's no coincidence. Like, it's not a coincidence that he spends a lot of time on finishing and then he scores a bunch of goals. Like, Of course, like, yeah. He's doing what he loves, you know? You, you could yeah. argue, you know, people will argue, like, Oh, it wasn't maybe it's not game speed, it's not game realistic. Where you can argue these things all you want and, and you can have fun doing that. But ultimately, if a kid's a striker and he's not getting any moments to strike the ball or and then he goes to a personal trainer to get and it, and then it then helps them, you can't say that's a coincidence. No, definitely not. It's all connected, you know. Yeah. And that was that was my big thing with Seb. It was a lot of people might assume that it was a marketing thing or it was this or it was that or but in reality it was an opportunity i got to work with a professional player and do something i love and then i got to know his family yes. and then it became like a friend then it yeah. became like trying to help a friend and then i really um wanted to help him perform and then the byproduct of that is because i live in a system where everything's social media i have to market it you know of course yeah but ultimately, if you bring it down to the basics, what I did with Seb, and I'll, I'll fast forward to near the end of the kind of more recent working with Seb. Yeah. Was basically, he'd had an injury and he'd been out for a year and he'd lost his confidence. Right. And what we did was we went back to what are your unique strengths? Mm. And for Seb, it was his the first touch, you know, a kind of South American style first touch, like, you know, the Argentinian background, very good yeah. first touch. He can play with flair. He can dribble. He can play balls down the corner. He can connect. A kind of flair player, you know, like a 10 or an inverted winger. So all we did for three months, November, December, January, was work on his strength. Hmm. Dribbling, 
crossing, finishing, but I tried to do it at game speed. I tried to replicate as much as I can, manufacture the situation, and not for the whole session, you know? Of course, Maybe the yeah. first half an hour would just be low. And that's a lot of the stuff you'd put on, you know, YouTube and social yeah. media, just put on like the basic stuff. But for that last hour, I would bring in college guys and high school guys and we'd try and replicate little moments of the game. And then he, he phoned me up as he went into the national camp. And he said, I've never felt so sharp. Everyone's talking about, everyone's coming up and saying, you look sharp, you look sharp, you know? So it's not a coincidence. Yeah. The personal plane it worked. And people will say that it doesn't work or you, it, it does work. It, it's, it's obvious it works. You're getting yeah. individual attention on yeah. your strength. So when he played against, I think it was, um, they played at Avaya Stadium, and he scores a goal and he sets up a goal and he feels great. So even if the training I was doing wasn't, um, you know, respected by team tactical coaches or whatever, it worked. It worked for his mentally. It worked for him emotionally. So that's where, why I'm so passionate about why do, profession, why do professional teams not have technical coaches in their first team staff in this country. Cause if you look at, you know, the superior strikers working with hurricane, yeah. a lot of, a lot of like, if you look at Spain, you can find things on YouTube of like Valencia, Atletico Madrid, they have technical coaches. Yeah. They have agility coaches, you know, they do. Yeah. And there's, still, there's still a kind of, my question would be like, is it fear or is it a lack of, they just haven't done it. Like, why would I, why would somebody be threatened by that? That would, uh, that would be because team coach, team ta- team coaches get threatened by it. They think it's like they, something about it. They don't. It doesn't fit with them. Do the you think it? Do, do you think it's because? And it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about. Do you think it's because? Is it an ego thing on the coach's part because they kind of want to feel like they're everything they're saying control. to the kids is yeah. what this kid should hear. And they're maybe worried that you're going to say something different that almost can contradict him in a way. And he just doesn't want that. That's what I think, personally. Yeah, I think it could be, it could be confusion, mm-hmm. fear, or ego. Yeah, probably all or three. Just, yeah, probably all yeah, three. Probably yeah. all three, yeah. Like, why would you... Because it's like you get... You only know... A lot of people only know what they know because it's what they've been... How they've been... Like, if you've never coached a private lesson in, the, in your life, maybe you just don't understand how... But what, what I have... I had the experience of, a, as a player, working with a personal trainer back in, like, in Scotland. Right. Working on my skills. I was the player working yeah. with a, a strength and conditioning coach. And it, he did, like, basically functional training with agility and speed. And, and he kind of put it all together. He put, like, strength, speed, technical positional stuff altogether. So I'm like 22, 23. I felt more confident. I felt like, I felt like a, cause here's the thing. They always argue that it affects your, your decision-making and your game understanding. If you spend too much time in isolated, yeah. what if a player already knows the game Yeah. and you're just sharpening the tools and you think about the, always the big thing I say, like is Steph Curry wrong to spend 30 minutes before the warm-up working on um, three-pointers. Hmm. Is he long to do that? No. Is that going to affect his decision-making? No, it makes no. him more smooth. Agreed. You think about a golfer, a tennis player. So I always find it fascinating why people um, kind of look down upon 
personal training is like a waste of time. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting, man, isn't it? It's interesting. I think that's the thing about coaching is that so many people have their ideas about it. And I think it'll probably always be like that. I think personal training is definitely becoming more accepted. Yeah. I know it's definitely growing here. Like I said, I've worked with, with a guy oh, that's... Yeah, yeah, it's growing here for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. People are doing the whole starting up their own one-on-one private companies and, um, you know, even... Ex- that coaches that have been in America and now coming back? N- not the ones that I know that are doing it. Mm. You know, there's an ex-pro uh, that's doing one here in Scotland. David Gold does, like, Golden Grey Soccer. Um, mm. That looks like it's a lot with young kids and they're, they're kind of progressing into... Older kids probably would like to speak to him at some point doing this. And then there's a guy I worked with that's just from kind of Edinburgh um, area. And, you know, he's, he started his own thing, does camps, does private one-on-ones, helps coach his team. So it's certainly it's starting to become a thing here as well. It's definitely becoming a thing. It's really cool. It's cool, man. It's a, different, it's, a different, it's a different pathway into being a coach, right? Like there's a different way to go about it. Like if you want to go down that path, it's uh, – yeah creates more opportunities but listen christy i know you've got michelle and the wee man to get back to <laughs> so i don't want to keep could it you, for, could you hear him in the background <laughs> i could hear the wee man in the background man just want, wanted to go kick a ball or something probably yeah, but um, um so look do you do you have anything you want to say before we finish up about anything you maybe think we've missed it's important or i don't know are you happy no. with what, what's been said no i think um i'd lo- i'd love to maybe come on again and maybe maybe in the summer or something, come on again and maybe could uh, present some, some things. Oh man, absolutely, mate. You're definitely, you're definitely getting an invite back on. That was, uh, that was really good. And I didn't really start it to go down this path. Like I said to you earlier off recording, I just kind of like doing podcasts. I've not got a lot to do right now. I started talking about football with my mates and I thought I've coached. I feel like I have a decent grasp on it and I feel like it's becoming a big thing coaching like we've said and I think that just talking like this can help people that listen as a coach pick the right decisions at certain moments in their time you know so it's uh all right it's been enjoyable man it's been good I enjoyed that chat. so much enjoyed yeah no that. worries man well listen we'll we'll if, if you don't mind I'll hit record and we'll just stay on for a minute or two and then uh and then say our goodbye but yeah man yep. Christy thanks for coming on I appreciate it anytime Cheers, all right Josh. man class